American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War Show. This is episode 199. Uh, whew, uh, yeah, a lot. Yeah. Um, with us today is uh, author of, I, I think, uh, over a thousand books looking at his <laughs> uh, biography, Michael Holtzman. We're here to talk about Michael's latest book, Spies and Traitors, Kim Philby, James Angleton, and the friendship and betrayal that would shape MI6, the CIA, and the Cold War. Welcome to our little show, Michael. Thank you. Was the thousand roughly right, give or take? <laughs> no, half a dozen of them. Oh, like okay. That. Does it feel like a thousand or? <laughs> uh, no, it's been kind of slow. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, I love the preface of the book, and I just want to read uh, a couple of excerpts to put people in the mood. We've talked about, uh, obviously, Philby and Angleton and the Cambridge Five on the show before, but, you know, it's been some years, I think, since we did our little biography on those guys, so it's great to jump back into this, and it's kind of relevant where we are in our series, talking about the Korean War, as we'll see. But in the preface of the book, you quote KGB spy master Mikhail Lubimov. He wrote, the Cold War is over. It is time to discard its stupid stereotypes, which portrayed the people on one side of the barricade as schizophrenic, homosexuals, alcoholics, chiselers and scoundrels, and their opponents as pure saints committed to moral values. Then you, right. then you write, when James Angleton died in 1987 and Kim Philby died exactly a year later, the overarching historical narrative seemed firmly in place. In the nearly century-long struggle between communism and capitalism, communism had lost, capitalism had won. Philby, with all his virtues, had chosen the wrong side. Angleton, for all his faults, had been on the right, the ultimately triumphant side. Things look less certain today. Capitalism has come close to collapse and in its recovery looks less and less closely allied with democracy. And if the lands of the former Soviet Union are no longer ruled by the Communist Party, virtually all of the East Asian mainland is, shall we say, managed by communist parties. Matters of historical interpretation have become increasingly complicated. That is a good thing. The old certainties created distortions, bending the interpretation of such information we have about the 20th century so severely as to be useful chiefly as information about the etiology of those certainties and interpretations themselves. We must now gather the used bricks of discredited historical narratives, chip off the mortar of early interpretations and attempt to assemble what remains in ways less predetermined by the conflicting ideologies of their time. Of course, our stories, no doubt, will be determined by ideologies of our own, of our own time, 
of which we have little conscious awareness, which is pretty much the best synopsis of this podcast we've been doing for the past five years, trying to piece together what really happened, leaving aside the mythology and the ideology of all sides. But I have to say, when we make comments like that, they tend to get us accused of being communists. So uh, I have to ask, Michael Holtzman, uh, are you now or have you ever been a communist? (laughs) Uh, Thank you. (laughs) Uh, There isn't a communist party. Mm. What about uh, uh, that's that's, that's yeah, not a, that's yeah. not a straight up answer. That's that's a bit of a dodgy answer. Are you pleading the fifth here, Michael? That's what it sounds like. No, I'm just a matter of fact. You you can't be a communist in the United States. There's no communist party. Aha. Uh-huh. Mm. Hmm. Okay. okay. Maybe we should do something about that. Ray, would you like to? <laughs> would yeah. you like to? Yeah. Yeah. As when I was going through your book, um, as we've seen during the Cold War and, and even today in the U.S., it seems to be. No middle ground. If you if you're anything other than communist, excuse me. If you're anything other than a conservative, maybe you're a socialist or you're a centrist or whatever. That doesn't seem to be good enough for a lot of people. The people on the right will immediately label you a communist again, as if that's some kind of attack. So I just wanted to ask, in your opinion, are Americans still captive to that Cold War mentality of extreme extremes? It's a big country. Yeah, some are. Uh, I think one of the Democratic Congress people was accused of being a communist the other day, which is quite an accomplishment in the absence of the Communist Party. Right. Um, I, no, some are, some aren't. Uh, is that just a bludgeon? About 30%, about 30% are uh, right. still fighting the Cold War. Mm. Good point. Yeah, some of us are still stuck in the 80s, and I just don't mean our clothes and our hairstyle. But, uh, uh, yes, it still seems to be an attack that you have to somehow defend yourself from if someone does call you or label you a communist. So, I don't know. To me, it seems like it it's still a rather effective tool to put someone in a corner where they suddenly feel like they have to defend themselves as, as opposed to just saying, yeah, I care about the average person in my country. Uh, personally, I, I don't have it happen. I, I don't get out much. Right. Good. Good yeah, like a podcast. That's, that's probably best. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did want to ask, um, you've written about Philby and Angleton before, and so what, what uh, prompted you to come out with this new book about them? I found a lot more uh, research resources. Mm. Okay. And uh, I also wanted to reconsider what I had thought about Angleton. Oh. Uh, the... The JFK Assassination Committee uh, persuaded the CIA to give them all the records pertaining to the Kennedy assassination. Wow. And uh, the, I don't know how this happened, but it appears to me that, that they just backed up a dump truck to, the, to Langley, right. filled it with anything that was anywhere near the Kennedy assassination records brought it up to Congress and dumped it on them. So you can go online and say, JFK assassination records, and there are mm-hmm. more than 10,000 pages wow. of secret CIA uh, records. Mm-hmm. And not all of them are about the Kennedy assassination, I said maybe the majority are, but they go back to the founding of the agency. 
and there's things like something I think someone just published a book about this. There's quite a bit about the plot to assassinate Patrice Lumumba, including uh, the contract for the killer uh, and the contract for the gun. <laughs> wow! Right. So it's kind of that level of detail, and it's completely unorganized. You you have to just start on page one and go to page ten thousand, which you might want to do. So, um, um, in that, there was a whole lot about angled, and I thought, well, that's interesting. Right. And then you know, there's this filby industry. So uh, one can little bits come out that haven't been there before. And one can put together this avalanche of information about the CIA as an organization and the people in it, and specifically about Angleton, and the uh, information that we have about Philby and get a different look at what happened. So I did. <laughs> I have to ask, did you find anything amazing about the Kennedy? Did you come across anything about the amazing about the Kennedy assassination? Or I find it, I guess the CIA was like, look, we had nothing to do with it. Here's everything we have. Maybe they felt safe in just dumping all these documents or making them accessible to the public. Well, Angleton was the CIA's advisor to the Warren Commission. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting the Warren Commission had a CIA advisor. Right. Uh, and uh, his job was to say that uh, we didn't do it. <laughs> Someone else did it. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. And he, he did that pretty well. When he was advising these committees, uh, you know, you, you go on CNN, you go on uh, C-SPAN, mm-hmm. and you see the meetings going on and the, uh, the senators sitting up there on high and so forth. And they're uh, diligently cross-examining witnesses. Right. Well, what you don't see is the previous day there was a meeting between uh, the staffers of the committee of the CIA, the FBI, and, uh, working out what the script was going to be. Oh, gotcha. So they knew ahead of time what was going to be asked, what was going to be answered. It's a lot like wrestling. It sounds like it was very staged. Yes. And so that that was Angleton's job there. I guess he, like everyone else, did not like surprises. And so Oh, he did not like surprises. Okay. Well, he he may have he may have got one with Philby. <laughs> we'll get into that story. <laughs> so let's start with Philby's uh, upbringing, if we can, you know, we, there's sort of a running joke on our shows that in order to understand something, you often need to understand what came before it, what led to it. For example, before we started talking about the Cold War, we had to do like 25 episodes on the Yalta Conference because we felt that if you don't understand the Yalta Conference, it's very hard to understand what came after the Yalta Conference. Um, and in your book, you seem to believe that in order to understand Philby and Angleton, you first have to understand who their fathers were. Anya Alta, did you read Elliot Roosevelt's book? Uh, I couldn't get the book, but I got lots of, I read lots of quotes from the book in other places, yeah, which I'd love to read his book. It's a real good source. Mm. Yeah, I bet. We'll have to go back and do another 25 episodes. Yeah. Uh, Philby's father? Uh, Philby's father was uh, perhaps a more significant figure than Philby himself in terms of world politics. Mm. 
he came out of that uh, British imperial class uh, from the Indian Empire. He was sent uh, to school in, back in England. He did very well. Uh, he was a very good linguist, for example, and apparently a good horseback rider. That was part of the exam when you went into the India Civil Service. Sure. This is uh, a few years before the First World War. Hmm. He went out to India and uh, went up the civil service ladder, the British Imperial Indian Civil Service ladder. And the, the Brits had a few thousand civil servants who ran all of India. Wow. So they say, uh, yeah, one, one to 10,000 ratio. <laughs> <laughs> an absurd ratio. Right. Uh, what you don't hear much about is that the, uh, except in Kipling's novel Kim, is there was a very large secret intelligence service, secret police. Mm. And then there was a considerable army. But in any case, there was this very small civil service, and these young men were sent out uh, after a rigorous examination in England, were sent out to India and made uh, mayor of a large town or judge over a county. Wow. And then more and more responsibilities. So they, they had this huge amount of authority at a very young age. Uh, Sinjin Philby uh, went up this ladder pretty quickly. Right. He was uh, what they called headstrong. So uh, sometimes they pushed him back down a couple of rungs, but then he went back up. Right. Uh, when the First World War started, the uh, Reds wanted to take over the Ottoman Empire. So they, they sent an army up into Iraq, which was an important Ottoman province at that time, and uh, conquered it after losing a couple of armies. Mm. At Kut, do you know about the Kut massacre? In any case, they, they, uh, they conquered Iraq. And Sinjin Philby became the finance advisor, I believe it was, to the British puppet government of Iraq. Mm. And had a big house. He had gotten married by this time, and his wife liked his big house. Uh, overlooking the uh, the river there in Iraq, Tigris, I think. Mm-hmm. He was doing very well, and then he got into a power struggle. They said, uh, the imperial government said, why don't you go to Arabia and see what's going on there? So he went out to Arabia, and he became advi- the British advisor to Ibn Saud, who was a chieftain. And Ibn Saud was trying to become king of Arabia. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, St. Philby gave him advice and was his connection to the imperial government. As far as the British Empire is concerned, Arabia was uh, a puppet of the Indian Empire, the Indian, right. British Indian. Right. Another uh, British... Uh, advisor, this one to uh, Hussein, who was another chieftain, uh, was a military man in the British military intelligence. 
and his he was T. E. Lawrence. Mm. And Lawrence, I believe. Right. So I had this kind of very nice researcher experience once. I was in the uh, British Archives in Kew in London, and I asked for Sinjin Philby's uh, correspondence from this period, and they gave me the, this very big album. Uh, as it was the imperial correspondence, they used big pieces of paper uh, that were very thick. And it was not only St. John Philby's memoranda, it was T. E. Lawrence's memoranda as well. So you could see them writing to their uh, superiors saying, uh, my guy needs this, and if he gets this, then he'll be able to kill a lot of Turks. Mm. So that's interesting, huh? Yeah, and they uh, they knew each other too, right? And I found this. Um, they knew each other, yeah, they knew each other. I found a, a newspaper article. Lawrence gave, sorry, he, go ahead. He, Lawrence gave uh, Sinjin Philby a lift on his airplane at one point. <laughs> Even though they were they were supporting rival factions, as it were, but they they seemed to be relatively friendly and um i found a newspaper article from 1941 actually calling philby the modern lawrence of arabia so that that connection between the two was in the public consciousness obviously in those times as well oh yeah yeah and when uh, lawrence died philby was instrumental in getting a monument for him and so forth yeah. some governments play both sides they win either way yeah they win either way. So, uh, Philby became, became an Arab nationalist, like T.D. Lawrence did, and uh, thought that the empire was doing the Arabs wrong. Mm. And he more and more moved from being the empire's man in the Arabian world to being the Arabian world's man to deal with the empire. Right. Eventually, it went so far as he converted to uh, Islam mm. and uh, had a mansion in Jeddah. And as a retirement present, uh, Ibn Saud gave him a slave girl for sure. a second wife, as one would. To go back, in the 20s and 30s, Sinjin Philby was as famous as Lawrence. Uh, Philby would uh, go to Ibn Saud from time to time and he said, uh, he'd say, you know, no one's been in the empty quarter in Arabia in a long time. Uh, I want to go there. And Ibn Saud says, well, it's empty, you know, but uh, here's a camel. So Philby uh, would go off into the desert and look for ancient cities and make maps and so forth. And then he'd go back to London and write a book about it. There's four or five books about his explorations. And he'd go on lecture tours and things, say hi to his son and his first wife, uh, and then go back to Arabia. And that was his career. It was very, very uh, significant. If you go through the, as you seem to, if you go through the archives of the Times of London, every couple of years there's a big story about St. John Philbin. Yeah, he was quite he was quite famous and well connected too. Something I learned from your book is that his distant cousin, Phil, later Field Marshal Montgomery, was the best man at his wedding. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, so they, well connected. There was a period at the beginning of the Second World War where the uh, 
the British government thought that uh, Sinjin Philby wasn't loyal, which was true, he wasn't loyal. Right. Uh, they, they imprisoned him, and then I think I must have quoted this, there was this big campaign among the ruling class to say, look, he's one of us, you can't do that. And they sprung him after a while. <laughs> and you, you wrote that... Um he advised Ibn Saud that Hitler would win the Second World War, recommended that the Sauds disinvest from Britain, and he helped broker a deal with the US to sell the uh, oil interests to the US. So it seems like betraying Britain was a family hobby. It was the family business. Yes. <laughs> Wow. Did, did he go? I guess he just went native. He just, he went there, he fell in love with the place and went native and... I guess that's the way I put it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just, wow. You write, you write, too clever by half, too much given to seeing the native side of the issues, too often expressive of his own opinions. His career was constantly on the verge of being sidetracked. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen David Simon's show, The Wire, but for our audience, no, I'm a, I'm a massive fan and... There's a character in that guy called McNulty, who's a cop who's always arguing with his superiors. Um, he sounds like a McNulty kind of guy. No, you don't do well. He eventually uh, did well in his own terms. He had this mansion in uh, in Jeddah guarded by bamboos and uh, as much money as he ever wanted. And that he was so famous that whenever anybody came through, uh, the the area who he might have been interested in, they were interested in him. So he had a good life that way. Right. I have to ask: was was he seen, or maybe he was seen as a traitor to his country by some segments? Certainly, maybe the government. But like you said, all, all of his other, uh, for lack of a better word, e- elite friends were like, "No, you can't do that to him. He's one of us. You can't. You know, he should be untouchable to a degree." Well, if you want to open that can of worms. Uh, what is your country? Oh, good one. In, in Britain, uh, before the First World War and until uh, the Attlee administration, uh, the r- ruling class, particularly the, the governing ruling class, didn't think of themselves as being the government of England or the government of the United Kingdom. Right. They were the government of the British Empire. Oh, okay. And, you know, uh, Churchill's famous statement that he did not become the king's first minister in order to uh, preside over the end of the British Empire. That's what he was fighting the war about. He wasn't fighting the war on behalf of the United Kingdom, and Mm -hmm. certainly not on behalf of the 85 to 90 percent of the population who uh, were unclean. Right. Yeah, and getting back to Elliot Roosevelt, he tells some interesting stories about the Atlantic Charter meetings between his father and Churchill, where it's quite obvious that uh, Churchill can feel the empire slipping away from him and uh, he's fighting, scrambling to try and keep it together, but he could just tell that he was in a terribly weak position. <laughs> it uh, It's quite sad, actually, when you read some of the some of the backwards and forwards between him and FDR, even at that uh, relatively early stage. I'm working on a book called The Anglo-American Cold War. Mm. 
uh, which is about how the United States took over the British Empire. Yeah. And it's very clear from Elliot Roosevelt and from any, many other sources that uh, Franklin Roosevelt had two primary war aims. One was to defeat the Nazis, and the other was to take over the British Empire. I have to ask, did, did the Americans think they could just do it better, or here's an opportunity because they're weak? Why wouldn't we want worldwide influence and a lot more gold or riches or whatever? It was just an opportunity, I guess? Roosevelt? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Roosevelt was an anti-colonialist. Oh, he was just trying to deconstruct. He wanted to, to, he wanted to take all of the empires down. Oh, okay. Uh, he was particularly horrified by the British Empire because he happened to run into it. Mm. But he wanted to get rid of the Dutch Empire in, the, in the Indonesia and the French Empire. Wow. Uh, he was quite determined to do it. And towards the end of his life, he was the most powerful person in the world in, the, in a quite literal sense, not in a kind of deep, uh, de jure sense. Of right. uh, so, and he, he was going to do that. So Philby's father was a rock star. He was famous. He had traveled. He had created maps used by later generations, certainly in the war. So, so he's, he comes from this amazing family that has a lot of money. And I imagine things are expected of Philby by his father. Uh, Kim Philby. Kim Philby, uh, yes. Expected. He, he was expected to be a member of that class. He, he was sent right. to the, uh, the same private school mm-hmm. that his father had gone to and that. He was sent to uh, Trinity College in Cambridge. This is a time when they weren't educating anybody. You know that um, right into the 1970s, two percent of the population went through college in England. Wow! Uh, this is a great way to build up your intellectual capital. Right. Um, so when uh, Kim Philby went to Trinity College. He would have known everybody there. He would have uh, known probably everybody in in the university who he was interested in knowing. Mm-hmm. And that all of those people, all those men, uh, were destined to be part of the ruling group. And I guess they imagined it would just go on forever like that. They thought they, they were going on. They thought forever. that they would go on forever. Yes. Yeah. So that's a bit about Philby's background. Angleton had quite a different background. Uh, He was the son of James Hugh Angleton, who you describe as a salesman and adventurer. Tell us a little bit about Angleton's dad and how you think he influenced his son. Well, he very much dominated his son. Mm -hmm. Um, James Hugh Angleton was... uh, had a story that's very, very typical of that era for Americans that has been completely forgotten. Mm. Uh, the Angletons had lived in uh, Virginia <laughs> and then gone over the mountains to Kentucky, and mm. that didn't work either. Then they went to Indiana, and that didn't work either. Uh, James Hugh Angleton uh, was destined to being a rural school teacher. Mm. And the rest of his family were farmers in a place where you really shouldn't farm in Indiana. It's not, not a good place to be a farmer. Right. Uh, he decided that he'd rather not do that anyway, and he went to Boise, Indiana. Mm. Uh, 
Boise, Idaho, when it was one generation from uh, the genocide of the indigenous people there. Right. Uh, the, the sorts of things that you do as a, as a young man in a frontier area, he was selling candy. Uh, and then he got a job selling cash registers, hmm. or the National Cash Register Company, which was the leading technology firm at the time. Hmm. He was a terrific salesman. He sold cash registers to everybody who needed one in uh, Idaho. Hmm. And then he became uh, a manager, and he taught other salesmen how to sell cash registers. Uh, he eventually was called back to Dayton, uh, Ohio, where the headquarters was, and he was made a vice president, a vice president for sales. Nice. About 1930, uh, there were some economic problems, and the profits <laughs> of the company were going down. He was sent out to Italy, he was sent to Europe to look at the branches of NCR in Europe and see what could be done to sell more cash registers. Uh, he looked around and he came back and he said, you know, I want to buy uh, your operations in Italy. Wow. And they said, sure. So he sold it. So he became uh, head of cash register business in Italy, uh, based in Milan. He was president of the Italian-American Chamber of Commerce, and a very big thing, mm. with uh, connections all through the government of Italy at that time, the fascist government. Right. Uh, close to the American ambassador and so forth, there's a very, very big thing. Back in, uh, something that, that's quite interesting is that back when he was in Boise, before he became a success, he was in the National Guard, and he was sent uh, with the Pershing Expedition to uh, find Poncho Pia mm. on the Mexican border. I think Idaho just tried to send the National Guard to the Mexican border again, but I don't know what Poncho Pia is doing. Uh, while he was down there, he uh, met a young lady, uh, Carmen Morales. Uh, who he thought was very attractive, and uh, they got married. And the first child was James Jesus Angleton, mm. the Jesus being from her family, right. and the James, of course, from his father. So James Angleton, our guy, uh, was half Mexican, and clearly must have been had at least kitchen Spanish from a young age. Mm -hmm. And goes to uh, Milan uh, in his early teenage period. Learns Italian, right? Not like Cinch and Philby, but he has has his languages, mm -hmm. and he's cosmopolitan. His father uh, sends him to a private school in England, and when he graduates, he goes to Yale. So he arrives in Yale. Uh, looking and acting like an Englishman. <laughs> right. So that's that background. The, the father uh, continues to be a, a, a big fish in 
Italy until the beginning of the Second World War when he uh, enlists the American Army and becomes a major in OSS. Mm-hmm. All right, let's, let's skip too far ahead. Let's go back and talk about young Harold Adrian Russell Philby, a.k.a. Kim. Uh, where did the nickname Kim come from? Well, he was born in India, and uh, people were reading Kipling. So they, they thought, oh, this is a great kid, you know, we'll call him Kim. And then in his early teens, I read, I think it was in another book when we talked about him earlier, that he he sort of spent some time with Bedouins in the desert to be turned into a man, a sort of uh, coming-of-age uh, thing. Did you read? Uh, I've never heard of that. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, it wasn't in your book, but I, it was in my notes from somewhere else. But it just, it's... Well, that is not true. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that that explains it then. Yeah. Glad you clarified that. You write um, that while in Berlin in March of 1933, Kim Philby argued with a Nazi in a boarding house where he was staying with a friend of his called Mill. Philby claimed that Nazism was a reactionary attempt to preserve capitalism, which... In fact, I've argued on this podcast many times before and in my last book, I talked about that quite a lot as well. Um, And in fact, I would say that the capitalists were uh, successful in using the Nazis to hold off socialism, at least in half of Germany. Um, But I want to talk about why Kim became a communist. In your book, you quote him as saying, and I think this is from his book, My My Private War. Is that what his autobiography was mm-hmm. called? My, my Silent War? Wall. My Secret War. Thank you. Several factors influenced my decision. Inner and external, emotional and rational. The study of Marxism and seeing the depression in England, books and lectures and the rise of fascism in Germany. Fascism was one of the deciding factors for me. I was becoming convinced that only the communism movement could resist it. I want to talk a little bit about what you learned about Kim's um, reasons for embracing communism at a relatively early age. Well, I think that sums it up. He, yeah, he looked around. He looked around England. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think he got to Scotland. He looked around England, and uh, he saw that the government was uh, waging economic warfare against most of the population. They kept cutting the uh, welfare benefits. Uh, People who, uh, unemployed people, were means-tested so that they couldn't have any possessions except their beds. And uh, the miners, particularly, were uh, slowly starving to death. And that this was a deliberate policy of the of the government, His Majesty's government in the United Kingdom, as they said. Right. Uh, the, did you have an episode on the general strike of 1923? No. Uh, okay, so uh, the miners were after the second after the First World War. The mine owners said, "Well." Uh, your good times are over, you know, we're going to stop paying you, uh, we're going to give you longer hours, lower pay, and so forth. And miners went on strike. Right. And then the entire labor movement went on strike. It was a general strike. 
Mm-hmm. They lost. Uh, I think because of Ernest Bevan. In any case, they lost. And uh, that broke the strength of the unions, and they got less and less money, and the working class, which was most people, mm-hmm. uh, got in worse and worse shape. And, and anyone who looked beyond the ivy-covered walls of Cambridge University could see this. So you say, all right, well, that's not good. And you're an idealistic young man. And, and then you go and you look in Europe and you see that exactly the same thing's going on. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, as you just pointed out, the, the Nazi party is coming to, to power in Germany. And it looked like the uh, only group that was actually going to fight was the Communist Party. Mm. This was uh, quite clear and vivid in Germany. Klaus Fuchs uh, made his decision on that basis. He went from being a Socialist Party militant to being a Communist Party militant in Germany in Mm. 1933. You've surely done an episode on Klaus Fuchs. No, it's a bit... It's a bit early in the timeline for us, but yeah, well, I think we've we've mentioned him briefly. We haven't gone into too much detail. Very interesting, Matt. Hmm. Anyway, so uh, I guess the idea uh, is that, like with Thoreau, you know, the question isn't why are you in jail, it's why are you outside, and the question wasn't why these people became communists. The question is why others didn't. Ah, uh, but uh, the specific instance, as you know, was that. Uh, this fellow Deutsch, Arnold Deutsch, uh, came up with this idea that uh, the Comintern could recruit young members of the elite and that all they had to do was wait and that these young men of this very tiny group uh, would rise up and become part of the controlling group in the British Empire. Right. And it worked. It's a great, great long-term strategy. So Kim goes to Vienna wow. where he meets his future wife, Litzy Friedman. Um, tell us a little bit about her. Well, she was a communist militant. So we're, we're talking about uh, Vienna in the, in the early 30s. Mm-hmm. And things are even worse <laughs> there. Uh, people are starting the streets. The government is not just hostile to the, to the working class, the government has declared war on them and, and is firing artillery shells into their apartment houses. Uh, the uh, Socialist Party collapses and the Communist Party is fighting. So uh, young Kim Philby was quite young and given the mores of the English ruling class at that time was probably a virgin in terms of heterosexuality, uh, gets swept off his feet by this young woman mm-hmm. who is deeply committed to the revolution and uh, is talented. So they moved then, to London. <clears throat> Sorry. They, yeah. Uh, well, there was a counter-revolution you know, counter in Vienna, and it became very unhealthy to be a committed communist in Vienna. And the only way that she was going to survive was if she became a British citizen. So he married her. And she became, uh, it's called a British subject. 
not a right. citizen. Uh, so he married her, and they, they went back to, to London. And it was at that point that, that she said, I have this person you should make, which was Deutsch. Hmm. And Deutsch said to him, look, uh, you're going to be a significant person in society, and don't you want to work for peace? And he said, of course I want to work for peace, even Neville Chamberlain is working for peace. Um, and Deutsch said, well, uh, tell your friends that you're not a communist, that you've, bec you've seen the light and you've become a fascist. Ooh. And uh, then we'll wait and see. So he did that. And it was, Deutsch represented the common turn, mm. not, the, not the KGB. Right. So what uh, Philby and his friends, Guy Burgess, Donald McLean and Tony Blunt thought that they were getting into was they were working for the Communist International, which happened to have particular strength in the Soviet Union, but was international. Mm -hmm. So the so uh, so the Comintern was using the very rigid system of Britain against itself. If we can get some young eighteen-year-old guys who think like us, tell them to bide their time because. Very few people are educated because the same type of people keep taking over positions of power. This will work to our advantage. We just have to bide our time. That's incredibly impressive and patient for the for these communists to do that kind. Of, and and as we see it, it worked quite well for them. Mm -hmm. You're sympathetic to these communists. That I yeah, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So they did that. Yeah. And they told Philby. Uh, Tell all your friends that you've decided that fascism is best, mm. and go for it. They, they didn't tell him everything to do. They just said, go that way. Right. So he joined the Anglo-German Fellowship. He did some writing for their paper. Uh, then his father, through his connections, got him an interview with the Times of London. Mm. And they said, oh, you're a Philby. We'll hire you. And he became a stringer during the Spanish Civil War wow. on the side of the fascists, on Franco's side. There's this, I mean, one of the fascinating things about his story, which you um, sort of articulate so well in the book, is throughout the course of the next few decades of his life, he is able to convince everyone that he believes this or he believes that. He, you know, it, sometimes he portrays himself as an ardent fascist. After the war, he's sort of an ardent British uh, MI6 uh, senior officer working deep in the bowels of the CIA and, and the Pentagon, and he's <laughs> closely connected with all the senior British uh, politicians and diplomats and MI6 and MI5. Like, he obviously had an incredible talent to compartmentalize uh, mm -hmm. his real beliefs, his real thoughts. Uh, like with his father, it was pretty obvious where his um, uh, uh, sympathies lay. Uh, he was very open and wore it on his sleeve throughout the course of his life. And yet Kim obviously was... was had a brilliant talent for deception 
my last book was called The Psychopath Epidemic, where I talked about the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the whys and wherefores of psychopaths rising to power and sort of all of our organisations and the role that they play in society. Um, what do you conclude about uh, Philby from a psychological point of view? For most people to m- maintain a lie... Uh, not just one lie, but an, an entire like uh, uh, fabric persona. of lies, yeah, right. an entire persona for decades. What, what was it about him that enabled him to be so good at that, do you think? I'm with you on that. I think he was a sociopath. Mm. Right. Okay. Not, that was part of, you know, sociopaths can be very charming people. That's mm. part of their defining characteristic, yeah. The successful ones, yeah, anyway. Yeah, and uh, they just don't care anything about other people. It's very charming. But he did care. That's why he became a communist, is he cared at, at the grander scale of things anyway. He cared, and there's evidence that he cared for some of his wives and those sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 I find it hard to sort of piece it together. Well, his next, to support you on that, his next to last wife said, uh, if you had to choose between me and the party, what would you choose? And he said, the party, of course. She well. left. <laughs> mm. uh, well, yeah. yeah. Um, now, I, I want to quote um, the Times on the 1st of April, 1936. Someone was writing an article and they wrote about... Uh, uh, his father, Mr. H. St. John Philby, denies that the great powers seek new homesteads. What they want is wealth, power, and the exploitation of the coloured man. So that was his father's uh, view of the great powers. Do you think? Do you think Kim and his father? had long late-night conversations about uh, the role of the great Western powers uh, in the world? Were they on the same page, or were they uh, from different sides of the street? Okay, that's three questions. I, I don't think they had those conversations until they were both in Beirut. I just mm-hmm. don't think that they were together enough. Right. Which was decades uh, later. They had different motivations. Yeah, Sinjin, Philby... Uh, was acting out of resentment originally. Why don't you make me viceroy? Oh, really? Wow. Um, and then gradually uh, identified with the Arabs, like as T.E. Lawrence did, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't think that he was ideologically driven at the beginning. Uh, I think yeah, Kim Philby is obviously ideologically driven as a mm. communist. Mm. Or at least that's, you know, how he uh, spun it or positioned it later in life. No, I think that that's what it was. Uh, did you see that video of, of Hobsbawm's life that came out earlier this year? No. The historian. Mm. Yeah, it's a, a wonderful video. Uh, and, of course, that's what they always ask Hobsbawm. You know, why didn't you leave the party? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you make these decisions. Mm. You live by them. Mm. Mm. So 
So as you say, in uh, May of 1937, uh, St John uses his connections to help Kim get appointed as a special correspondent with Franco's forces in Spain for the Times. And you write, (laughs) Kim Philby was accredited by the Times to Franco's headquarters, along with a recommendation from the German embassy in London, which described him as an ardent supporter of fascist ideas. Now, there's a job recommendation. That's a really great job recommendation. So from that point on, there, there was a kind of apprentice period. And then from that point on, everything that the ruling class in England read about the Spanish Civil War that uh, tracked what the fascist forces were doing was written by Kim Philby. But the thing that, that blows my mind about this is the, the people in charge of the Times are going, oh, he's, a, he's an ardent fascist, great. That's, what, that's the kind of man we want. Let's get, that, let, get him on the team, it's send him out to Spain. This is 1937, a couple of years before the war, uh, you know, but it's, it's just from a modern perspective, that's kind of uh, outside of the Trump administration, that's a fascinating uh, 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 view and strange view f- <laughs> to take. Well, the, strange the, reaction. The imperial ruling class was doing what it could to make sure that Franco won the war. Mm. Why was that, do you think? Uh, because they didn't want the communists to win the war. They were pro-Franco. <sighs> yeah. yeah. And he got a medal from Franco, didn't he, Kim? It had a medal personally pinned on him. Wow. Worth its weight in gold, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Wow. All right, so let's... And then he goes back. Yeah. Sorry, go. Oh. Did you read any of the articles? They're very well written. No, I didn't. No, just your, uh, yeah, some of your excerpts. They're all anonymous, of course, but they're, say, mm. from our special correspondent with the uh, nationalist forces. Mm. And he had a way with words. What I gathered from your yeah. book, not only were they well-written, but he was very convincing in his ability to portray, the, you know, to write them from the perspective of an ardent supporter of fascism and Franco. Mm-hmm. They're mostly, they're just uh, factual. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, He doesn't say, you know, the fascist swine then massacred all the women and children. He he says that there was this movement of the regiments. Yeah. Right. Still. So, skipping back to Jim, Kim and Jim. So, Jim Angleton, as you mentioned, went to Yale in 1937 and... This, of course, is during the years of the Great Depression, the anti-communist radio rants of Father Coughlin, one of my favourite characters that we've done. We did a long series on Father Coughlin. Uh, The years of the Dust Bowl, the German-American Bund, the rise of Hoover's G-Men. Another one of my favourite characters, Harry Bridges, the Australian union leader who everyone hated and they they tried to deport for for decades. Several times, yeah. (laughs) Capitalism. Another comment. Yes, capitalism had failed in America as well as failing in the UK and around the world. I remember uh, we were telling the story how FDR told Wall Street that he wasn't their enemy, he was their savior, but they hated him anyway. Uh, Tell us about how poetry impacted on Angleton. Angleton was a poet, he was a very good poet. undergraduate poetry. I had some very good poetry. Uh, he also had his father's organizational uh, ability. Mm. So he uh, 
and a friend of his started this magazine, Furiosa, uh, which is probably the best undergraduate magazine that's ever occurred, literary magazine. He published uh, William Emson, E. e. Cummings, uh, T.S. Eliot, Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound. Um, <laughs> pounds and, and pounds of Ezra poetry. Pound. William Carlos Williams. Right. Uh, it had poems and essays and so on, and it was very good. Um, and he became uh, enamored of Ezra Pound. Mm. He spent some time visiting him when he was home between school years in Milan. He would go to Apollo and visit Pound. Uh, he got so close to him that when the war started and the FBI was looking at, at fascists, they uh, looked at him because wow. they thought that, that he must have been a fascist, fascist since he was so close to Ezra Pound. The uh, impact of the Depression on Yale uh, is minimal. The, all those nice Gothic, neo-Gothic buildings at Yale were built during the Depression. Mm-hmm. And so once you were inside there, you were in the castle. Uh, you didn't didn't see a lot of communists in Yale. Uh, it's not clear that Angleton paid any attention to anything except poetry and Ezra Pound's anti-Semitism, which he picked up. Yeah, you... I did want to ask about about that. If I'm sorry, Cam. So so uh, Angleton's a big fan of Pound. Pound has um, right-leaning views, whatever you want to call it. Certainly anti-Semitic. Um, so I just want to clarify: Angleton's a big fan of his poetry. Certainly picks up on his attitude towards Jews, which for Angleton will kind of change later. But would you say that's as far as it went? Did Angleton not, maybe because of Pound, keep going to the right, almost to the point of fascism? Or did it stop somewhere along the way? He was just being a good one percenter American because his father was rather rich um, after a couple of years in Milan, I believe. Yes, well, he was as rich as you need to be in Italy during the Depression. Good point. Angleton's politics are the politics of the American ruling class at the time. Mm. Uh, he probably was not a, a, as far right as E.E. E. Cummings, for example. Mm. And he certainly wasn't a fascist. Okay. Um, he, I don't know whether you want to get into this. This is mostly in my previous book on Angleton. He married uh, Cecily Dolchemont, mm-hmm. who was uh, from Tucson, not from South Dakota. Right. Uh, <laughs> and her, Cecily Dolchemont, who was a very good poet, and her mother were liberals. Mm. And uh, a, a, very, a seriously wealthy family. The, uh, the father, uh, Mr. Dolchemont, was... Uh, a lawyer for the uh, Duluth mining industry. Um, so they, they settled in Tucson, where they were the kind of dominant family in Tucson. The mother uh, kept drifting to the to the left and uh, took care of um, poor Mexican families in town right. and that sort of thing. So that probably that might have we're just speculating that might have stopped Angleton from going much further. His his mother-in-law wouldn't have liked it. 
Well, you, you quote a letter Angleton wrote to Ezra Pound in February 1940 where he says, there is a hell of a lot of Rooseveltian shilly-shally here in America. I don't know what shilly-shally is, but we'll get into that in a second. Everything is definitely British and the Jews cause a devil of a lot of stink. Here in New York will be the next great pogrom and they do need about a thousand ghettos in America. Jew, Jew and Jew. Even the Irish are losing out. And we've pointed this out many times before. Anti-Semitism wasn't unique to the Nazis in the 30s and 40s. Anti-Semitism was the dominant mindset for 1,500, 1,700 years in Europe and was the dominant mindset certainly of the elite and the upper class and many people in the working class too in the United States at the time. All sort of came to a bit of an abrupt halt after the war. But up until that time, you know, we, we've talked about the Evian conference many times on the show when Hitler literally said, if you want our Jews, we will pay to send them to you. Anyone who wants them, we will take them. And, you know, I always like to quote the Australian foreign minister at the time, who was ironically called Mr. White, said, uh, and we had the white Australia policy in Australia at the time. He famously said at the Evian conference, we don't have a racial problem in Australia and we don't intend to get one. Probably Mm. didn't talk to our indigenous population about that before he made that statement. But uh, that was sort of the dominant view. The the whole world during the Evian conference, pretty much, it's a couple of small exceptions, but pretty much the whole world, including the United States, went, oh, no, 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 we're we're full. We, 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 We can't take any, we can't take any Jews. Thank you very much for asking. Roosevelt said, when, I, when, when he was a member of the board of Harvard, he was consulted about the fact that they had a problem that too many Jews were getting in. And he said, well, look, what we should do is have a quota. Mm. And so they instituted this quota system. I was doing some research on uh, Norman Holmes Pearson uh, at Yale, and for some reason, they let me look at the in, internal mem, uh, correspondence of the president and provost of Yale in the uh, 40s. And one of, one of them would write to the other when one of them had gone to uh, have dinner with, with a wealthy Jewish donor to Yale, offering his sympathies. Sorry you have to put up with that. Right. And for a while, Yale turned down the GI Bill. Because if they had accepted that, they wouldn't be able to keep up the quotas. Right. Wow. Uh, so then they, they felt they had to accept it, and they used the quotas in other ways. Uh, Angleton reversed after uh, about 1944 mm-hmm. and became uh, very pro-Israel. And we can talk about that. That's an interesting story. Yeah, well, uh, let's let's save that for a bit later on um, because I want to talk about uh, the connection with the OSS that you mentioned before. So you said that his father joined the OSS, was personally invited, I read in your book, to join the OSS by Wild Bill Donovan himself in 1941. Um, Jim, the son, joined in 1943. So the Angletons had two family businesses – NCR Italy and the OSS. Meanwhile, you know the the, 
<laughs> okay. And the, the Philby's family business was betraying the British. And around about this time, the father, St. John Philby, gets arrested by the British. Tell us that story. The uh, British consul, I think, in Jeddah, uh, heard St. John Philby saying that the Brits were oppressing the Arabs and that it would be better if Britain lost the war. Ooh. So, so the next time St. John Philby went to London, well, it was... St. John Philby said he, he wanted to do a lecture tour of America, pushing this point of view. And the Brits uh, stopped him, got the ship, got him on another ship, got him to London, arrested him. And then it became a family quarrel. There was uh, some part of the uh, British police establishment wanted him to stay in jail mm-hmm. and uh, his wife St. John Philby's wife uh, called up all her friends who happened to be cabinet ministers wow you know just by chance sure. and uh, <laughs> after some correspondence back and forth they kind of did a well he's not going to hurt anything is he and they, they let him out if only Julian Assange was married to somebody <laughs> who was friends with uh, cabinet ministers he might be the, out today. The right people. Was it a gentleman's agreement? He can't hurt anybody, so we'll let him out because... Yeah, it wasn't a judicial thing. Mm. Gotcha. It was an executive. Somebody wrote a letter. Gotcha. Wow. The elite. So Kim starts working for British intelligence around about this time, and this is the same guy, the German embassy, the Nazis described as an ardent supporter of fascist ideas... Then he ends up working for British intelligence. Well, that wasn't disqualifying. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. How does that no. work? No. <laughs> uh, what happens is that after he came back from Spain, he was uh, sent out to France with the British Expeditionary Force and wrote, wrote all the articles about that for the Times. Mm. And uh, that job kind of ran out and, June 1940. Uh, and he went went back to London again, and he was kind of at loose ends. And uh, his father, yeah, you know, he was uh, he was recommended to someone high up in the uh, British Secret Intelligence uh, Service, wow. and they said, uh, "Well, we know your people. We'll hire you." That was that was the screening. Right. <laughs> that was the interview. Yeah, uh, welcome to the club. <laughs> uh, he was brought into to MI six specifically through SOE by Guy Burgess. Remember Guy Burgess? Mm-hmm. So Guy Burgess was doing propaganda for the Brits, and in Section D, and that became part of SOE, the Strategic. Uh, and he said, I, I have this friend who's a good guy, we should bring him in. He knows about propaganda. He's a journalist. Right. So they bring Philby in, and the organizations keep changing, and eventually he ends up in MI6, the International Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, 
Guy Burgess was, didn't kind of make that uh, leap because Guy Burgess was a bit um, ultra. Right. A bit difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so he went to work for the BBC. He went to work for the BBC. Yeah. Mm. Guy Burgess, obviously, one of the Cambridge Five, obviously working for the... Is it the NKVD still at this stage, I guess? Is, uh, before oh, the he thought he was working for the commentary. Right. Um, mm. So he brings Philby in to work for British intelligence. Now, so you've got Philby now has access to all sorts of top secret information that he's passing on to Moscow. Tell us Philby's version of the Rudolf Hess story because that's important, uh, I feel, to understanding Stalin's view of Churchill uh, and his, his alliance with the other members of the Big Three at this stage. Well, Hess uh, flew a plane into Scotland to work for peace. Anybody that's working for peace. Uh, <laughs> He's the good Nazi. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Sorry. He wanted to meet with the Duke of Hamilton. Uh, who had been a member of the Anglo-German Fellowship, which Phil Peake has been. And Churchill uh, put him in isolation and wouldn't let anyone talk to him, uh, which, you know, as you know, continued until Hess died. Right. And Stalin, who wasn't the most trusting man in the world, uh, <laughs> thought at this point that... Uh, had been sent over to do a deal. That wow. there would be a reversal of alliances. But this is perfectly reasonable. Churchill was trying for a reversal of alliances since 1917. Mm -hmm. And uh, continued to do so. Uh, a couple of years later, in 44, a couple of years after his came over, uh, he actually tried to do it. So uh, it's wow. reasonable for Stalin to be suspicious about this. And as a matter of fact, we don't know. Mm. We still the, don't know. The deal that uh, is generally said was on the table, whether or not it was Hess with others, was that uh, Germany would have uh, Europe to the Urals and the British could keep their empire. Mm -hmm. mm. Which, from what I said earlier, was probably a reasonably attractive offer for the British ruling class. Mm. Right. Wow. Not clear why they didn't do it. <laughs> Should have. Well, Philby's version of events uh, was that, if I recall correctly, was that Hess was claiming that he was sent by Hitler to do the deal. Hitler, of course, denied it publicly, uh, and Churchill denied it publicly. But, you know, with Stalin's, you know, with the history between him and the British and the Americans and Hitler, as you say, he and we... we said this numerous times, he had every right to be paranoid. Uh, his country had been invaded twice in his life. The British and the Americans had invaded after World War I, trying to restore the monarchy. Uh, the, you know, the Germans obviously had invaded twice. Uh, I'm sorry? The British were the Brit planning the to invade? The French were planning to invade the Soviet Union in '39. Uh, this is before or after the uh, deal between Hitler and Stalin, the Molotov Pact? Before. This was at the, the Finnish War, the Winter War. Right. Uh, they were going to try to help out. 
and they were and within two days of helping out. And and if I remember correctly, Stalin agreed to the Molotov Pact because the 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 the, the strategic peace deal with the Nazis because he believed that they were going to do that with the British. They were going to, it was like they were going to do a deal with the British and attack the Soviet Union. So it was uh, whoever can get a deal with the Nazis first wins, basically, or avoids war for a couple of years he, anyway. He needed some He needed some time to build up the, the army. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was well, convinced that they were... Of- Sorry, go we always read history backwards. The Soviet Union in 1939 was not the Soviet Union in 1950. It was a, a fairly weak, underdeveloped country that had, had a big army, but otherwise uh, was not considered to be a match for Poland. Poland was about to invade. Yeah, and there'd obviously been stouches between the two for, well, you know, centuries, really. Okay, so uh, Kim and Jim finally meet in 1944 when they're both in London. Jim's about five years younger than Kim, and Kim is a bit of a, a mentor to him, right? Teaching him the, the ways of spycraft. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the United States had no secret intelligence organization until Donovan set it up, as you know. Actually, from here on out, all my statements should be followed by the phrase, as you know. Uh, so, uh, OSS was set up. They didn't know how to do anything. And uh, uh, James Hamilton was sent to London to learn how to do something. He was sent to London to learn how to do counterintelligence. Mm-hmm. The star in British counterintelligence was Kim Philby. Um, what you do in counterintelligence... Uh, it doesn't have much to do with a trench coat. You sit at a desk in an office and you read reports and then you write reports. Um, the National Archives of the United States uh, in Maryland have cubic feet of uh, reports back and forth from Angleton once he went to Spain, once he went to Italy. Um, it's just an amazing amount of paperwork. Mm-hmm. So Philby taught Angleton how to do this, how you read this, how you keep in touch with people, right, and so forth. A crucial thing that, that happened was that the Brits were reading uh, the German codes, as you know, as you know. <laughs> and uh, I think Philby himself developed a system where you would, there would be these groups a small group of people who working for British intelligence would be sent out into the field. And one of them would uh, have been informed about the codes and that they had been broken. So uh, this person would say, um, the Germans are going to have an offensive on Friday. Right. And they'd say, how do you know that? And he couldn't say because we broke the, the German codes. He would he would make up something. He would say, oh, I just captured this German soldier coming across the lines, and he told me that, and I shot him. Wow. And this became uh, something that Angleton got uh, got very good at. Anyway, they're back in London, and Philby's teaching him all this stuff, and Philby becomes 
the British counterintelligence person for the Mediter Western Mediterranean, mm. and had as his great coup a project where they uh, got all of the German uh, Avar uh, agents in Spain expelled. Wow. Uh, so after that, that was a good thing. They gave him the medal. You know. Uh, and he got a lot of prestige. So he had taught Angleton uh, what he needed to know. Angleton was still writing poetry, apparently. You know, <laughs> so they sent Angleton out to Italy uh, about the time of the... Uh, I'm thinking it was as the Amalfi invasion. Uh, invasion. That was not it. it was the next place down the, the coast. Uh, so the United States had the lower half of Italy. The United mm -hmm. States and had the lower half of Italy. And Angleton became head of counterintelligence in that area. And he did a really good job. And as the armies went north, he became uh, head of counterintelligence for all of Italy. And the quasi-head of NCR for all of Italy at the same time. So two jobs. Quasi-head of... NCR. National He's cash. like the, the, the junior vice president or something of NCR at the same yeah. time. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so all this time when he had a, a, a technical problem or he needed some special information, he'd call up uh, Kim. Kim. And he's in help with this. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. And that went on until the, even until the end of the war when, uh, as you know, uh, Truman dissolved the OSS, and the people who were in the OSS were trying to save it. Donovan was trying to save it, and uh, mm -hmm. people in the various other units. So the people who were in the counterintelligence unit uh, were trying to save it. And they went up to London, and they asked Philby for his advice on how to do this. It's great. So they were tight. Yeah, very tight. It's a great story. So uh, going back a bit, in 1944, Philby told Moscow that he'd heard the USA and the UK were collaborating together on creating this thing called an atomic bomb, and they just apparently forgot to tell their uh, staunch ally about it. Um, how do you think Stalin would have interpreted that news at the time? He would have been very disappointed and lost his trust in the United States and Britain. <laughs> Which he didn't have a great deal of to start with, but I think he, I think he, I think he trusted FDR uh, to a degree. They no, seem to have, FDR. they seem to have a, a genuine sort of simpatico going on. Yeah, FDR wanted to tell the Soviets about the atomic bomb. Who prevented him from Churchill doing that? Said. Churchill. How could Churchill prevent FDR from doing what he wanted? FDR was the definitely the senior partner in that relationship. The Quebec Agreement and the Hyde Park Agreement uh, said that neither the United States nor Britain would tell any third party about the atomic bomb without the permission of the other. Oh, really? Yeah, so Stalin look, knows what he's dealing with. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Stalin knows yeah. he's being... Well, they, they're hiding this from him, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, everybody Stalin had lunch with was telling him about the atomic bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Wow. The world's worst kept secret. Her Donald McLean was on the Combined Policy Committee mm -hmm. in Washington that made the decisions about the financing of the atomic bomb. Right. <laughs> so so it's yeah. all getting back to Stalin. Yeah. yeah. 
So Philby eventually gets made overall controller of MI6's secret agents in the Soviet Union, which is just so hilarious. It's hard to believe this is a real story. He, he was in charge of the anti-Soviet activities with the MI6, yeah. Wow, that's that's incredible. <laughs> and he uh, accepted the job with a straight face. Yeah, who, who better to be in charge? <laughs> that's true. It's just uh, uh, it's so yeah. astounding, right? Sorry, yeah. So he knew then everything that was being done by the Brits and the Americans to try uh, to uh, weaken the Soviet Union to roll back uh, the system. So all those years ago, I'm sorry, well, all those years ago when uh, his handler or whatever the proper term is told Philby, pretend to be on the right, lay low, that is paying huge dividends um, for Soviet Russia right now. Because like you said, they got access to the British and American intelligence activities. So that is incredible. I did want to ask this thing, uh, question before we move on as a World War II buff, because uh, I found this amazing. I knew some of it, but I didn't know... Um, uh, a lot of it that I learned in your book. Uh, could you tell me about Plan Ivy and Prince Borghese? Um, and, and that Donovan, I would assume, is trying to take credit for ending the war, at least in Italy, uh, which is kind of ironic because, like Cam said just a minute ago, the OSS is not going to be long for this world. But could you tell us uh, some about that and how it helps bring the war to an end, at least in Italy? You're talking about Dulles. Dulles, is that who I'm talking? Okay, but if you could tell us about uh, Plan Ivy um, and Prince Borghese. Borghese is an interesting story. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing you do if you're in charge of counterintelligence is you try to turn other people. Right. You know, you don't want to work for those guys that lose who's come work for us. (laughs) Right. A very important Italian uh, military person was this Prince Borghese. And Angleton wanted him mm. to, so that he could uh, have control over Borghese's group. Right. Uh, on the other hand, the uh, the Italian partisans wanted him too, so that mm. they could kill him. Uh, mm. So there, uh, there's this very dramatic thing that, that I uh, narrate there where Angleton, probably for the only time in his life, uh, gets his re- service revolver and his, his chums and they go up to uh, where Borghese is hanging out and the right. partisans are at the front door and uh, Angleton says I'm Angleton, here's my badge and they let him go into the apartment house and they and Angleton gets uh, Borghese and they go out the back door <laughs> which yeah. would make a great scene in a movie I think Right. that's pretty they, courageous for him it was very courageous and out of character. That seemed to be a completely unique thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was probably pretty and pretty excited about that time. Angleton right. got control over the Italian naval intelligence system. Wow! Uh, this way mm-hmm. by turning people, uh, and then it's it's not clear, but maybe the entire uh, military intelligence system of Italy. Philby taught him well. Uh, through yeah, Philby taught. And through that, they then had uh, sources in the Italian cabinet. Mm-hmm. So uh, members of the Italian cabinet in the mid and late forties were CIA agents. 
Wow. He was also uh, interested, and from this point on for the rest of his life, in developing liaison relations with other intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. So he established very good relations with the Brits, of course, but also with all the Allied agencies that, that were present in Italy, and of course everybody was, because who wouldn't want to go to Italy? And also the uh, Vatican's intelligence agency, which wow. uh, was very good. He also established relations with uh, the people who later put together Mossad. Mm -hmm. And uh, he says, I have this information, I'll take that from you, you take that from me, we'll give this to the French. And develop the, these networks. At that point, as I said earlier, uh, he be, he liked them, mm -hmm. and the anti-Semitism just kind of goes away. Right. And and later life, he would vacation in Israel. Mm -hmm. And then there's another story that I'm sure you want to get to about that. So Philby has picked out. He does such a good job doing anti-Soviet work <laughs> for the uh, British Foreign Intelligence that they say. Uh, before you can become head of uh, MI6, they don't actually say it that way, but, uh, you need to get some experience in the field. So he first went to Istanbul, to, and uh, then he went to Washington. Which, of course, puts him in the perfect position to spy on both countries for the Soviets. This is part one. Next time we'll see you with part two, where Kim Philby and James Angleton get together, become friends, and then there's betrayal. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.